Okay, good morning. Today we'll be learning Daf Yud Zayin in Maseches Shkalim. We will start with the Mishnah, Halacha Beis, on the bottom of Tes Zayin Amud Beis. And the Mishnah says, we were talking about the 13 places where you bow down. The 13 Hishtachavos. There's a Machlokas as to what the location of these 13 Hishtachavos are. What are they corresponding to? And so let us begin. The Mishnah says, Heichan Hayu Hishtachavos. Where were these Hishtachavos? So, the first shita is Arba Batzafon, four in the north, uh, not the north of Israel, but the, we're talking about, right, the, the base of Mikdash over here. So in the courtyard of the base of Mikdash, you had four in the north, four of Arba Bedarom, four in the south, Shalosh Bemizrach, three in the east, and Ushtayim Bemarav, two in the west, Bemarav, Keneged Shlosha Asar Sharim. So that's the first shita. The first shita is that it, it corresponds to the 13 gates. Okay, very good. When would you pass? So, in Maseches Midos, we talk about that if whenever you would pass the gate, you would bow down. It would be almost like the equivalent of people kissing the mezuzah these days as they walk through a doorway. I refer you to the chart. We're going to be referencing it. I'm going to keep, keep my finger on it. On, in the article, it's on 17A2. Uh, and they have, not a chart, but a diagram of what the Heichal and the Ezra Snashim, but the entire, the entire Heichal and, and the entire um, structure that we're going to be referring to looks like. And it shows you where the 13 gates are. Okay. Uh, those who have seen the southern wall excavations will recognize those those southern gates over there on the bottom. Um, but but we will we, we will look at it further now. So and you see the way it's oriented in the article, by the way, is the way you're used to seeing it with with north south east uh, north south east west in the configuration that we're used to with north being on top. Okay. So that's sheet number one. Now the Mishnah points out what these gates are. So that's why I refer you to the chart. So Jeromim Smuchim Lamarav. Right. We're going to go now downhill from. Uh, East to from uh, from west to east over here, um, so going east downhill, starting from the southern wall. So dromim smuchim lemaarav, which means when you're southwest, right? Starting from the west, are first shahar elyon. So when I say we're going downhill, I mean the topography of the area over there goes downhill, such that the kadosh arkadoshim, right? What we call the western wall would be over there between gates twelve and thirteen, right? And so the it's it's that wall around it. Now that was very, very close to the Kodesh HaKadoshim, right? If the wall that we had, that we went to in Yerushalayim was the, right, was the Eastern wall, it would be further from the, from the Kodesh HaKadoshim. So really, as we know, and as we'll see more, and we're about to learn, right, Maseches Yuma, a lot of the things that we're going to be discussing today are going to be um, clearer in Maseches Yuma, because here, as we know, a lot of it is a little bit unedited, so, so it's a little bit harder to understand, but Maseches Yuma will go over some of it, and other Maseches too. But um, anyway, the Kodesh HaKadoshim is not far from that Western wall. Um, Okay, and I'm, I'm pointing that out because really the way the base Hamikdash is situated, that western part is on the highest elevation. That particular mountain, right, the Harbais, is so situated that the topography, right, obviously the floor is flat, right, but the, but it's the highest elevation is on the, um, on that western side. Anyway, that is the reason why that first gate is called the uh, Shah Elyon. It's called the Shah Elyon because technically that is the highest topography over there on the westmost part of that southern side. Okay. The next Shah is the Shah Hadelek. The controversy over here, discussion as to what it means. Shara Delek uh, would seem to imply that that's where Delek in Israel, uh, Tachanat Delek is a gas station. Shara Delek is the kindling gate. Um, where you, so you would think that maybe they're bringing in that, uh, the firewood from there. The problem is we just said um, yesterday that the firewood was on the northeast corner. Well, this is the southwest. We said that the Lishkas Ha'itzim was on the northeast corner. This is on the southwest corner. So this would not be an efficient place to bring in the firewood. And so there's a discussion as to why exactly it was called the Shahadelic. What kind of, uh, what kind of lighting materials are you bringing in? Be that as it may, that was the name of that, 
of that shahar. The next one is called shahar b'choros. That makes more sense that you would bring in b'choros there because that is actually near the area where you were actually sacrificing uh, the firstborn when you're making that those particular kabbanos. Then the next one is right. Uh, then the next one is the shahar hamayim. We're going to talk a lot today about the mayim. Okay, um, the Gemara is going to discuss why it's called Sharmayim, but that is Sharmayim. The mission itself teases it. It starts with Why was it called the Watergate? When? So as we arrive at Zayin Baalef, the Tzluchis of the Nisuchamayim Bechag. Right? When you have on Sukkis, we have the Nisuchamayim. Uh, the Nisuchamayim was literally what it sounds like the pouring of the water. Right? We have the Simchas Beis Hashavevas on Sukkis. The pouring of the water was part of the, of the Korbanos of Sukkis. And you would bring a flask of water, right, and pour it into, uh, bowls sitting right by the Mizbeach at the southwest corner. This will be discussed when we talk about Sukkis in Masecha Sukkah. But because that's in, right, in the southwest corner of the Mizbeach, and you'll see when you look at the chart on 17-2A, uh, 17-A2, you see that, sure enough, the fourth gate is right up against that, that is a very efficient design, very ergonomic design, where you're walking in through that fourth gate and you find yourself at the southwest corner of the Mizbeach, so you're right near the bowl. That's a good thing because, right, you're, you're carrying uh, the water and you don't want to spill it and, and it's heavy, so you don't want to be like schlepping it all the way across to the wrong place. That's a good placement for that fourth gate. Okay. So the, the Rabbi Yezer bin Yaakov says it's called a, it's called the gate of the Mayim for a different reason. Rabbi Yezer bin Yaakov says, Bohamayim Mefachim, that it is through that gate that the waters trickle, the Asidin Liyos Yoitzin Mitachas Miftan Habayis. And from there, their destiny is to go out from under, under the house. The, thresh, the sort of the threshold of the house, the edge of the house. So this is something that we're going to be spending a lot of time discussing. What is that water? Where is it coming from? Where is it going to? The Gemara will discuss at great length. The first shot, uh, because of the construction, as you can see, because of the uh, construction over here, the first shot makes a lot of sense, right? You're walking in and that's me doing the Nisach Why? Why the Cholik on that? Um, I don't know, but uh, there is a lot of discussion as to this water. Don't worry, we'll, 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 have, we'll, we'll give it its due uh, time as we get into the Gemara very shortly. But that is, that was, that's the first four gates. Now, opposite those four southern gates, now we have in the Mishnah, Le'umasan, B'tzafon Smuchin Demarav. Opposite those southern gates, we have in the north, right, the following gates. Now we're still going from, right, west to east, but now we're on the top over here, on the north. So gate number five is going to be the Shar Yechania. The Gemara will discuss, uh, that the, this was the Golos of Yechania. That's the Shar that they took him out of. Um, so what's interesting about that is that that was done at the right at the Chorban, right? It wasn't called Shar and Chanya throughout the right, not during the first base of Mikdash. It wasn't called that because that was at the end of the base of Mikdash uh, of the first base of Mikdash that they were calling it Shar Yechanya, right? Then Shar HaKorban, right? The, so the Shar where they're going to take out the Korban or bring in the Korban rather, right? Why was it, why is that specific one the one in the Korban? Because that's where uh, the Kodesh the Kodesh were brought in. The right those offerings were brought in through there. Um, Okay, because that was adjacent uh, to where, a little bit closer to where they were going to be brought. Although that could have also been placed if it was any, if it was only for that reason. Um, you know, we'd have, you'd have to go through the actual daily right rituals of, of the day to see why that would be a good placement. The Nisachamayim one is is more obvious. Okay, then Shar Hanashim. Um, so that's gate number seven. Why were the, where were the women going? That's not near the Ezra Hanashim. Aren't they coming in from the? If you, as you look at the design, aren't, aren't they coming in from the east side? So why is the seven called Shar Hanashim? So there were certain. Um, there were certain times where the, the women would come in um, from uh, from that direction they, in order to do smicha on some of the karbanas. In other words, on the rare occasion that women would come in to bring um, the karbanas, not just to come into the Ezra's Nashim, but to bring karbanas, so then they would come in through that shahar. There was a discussion that uh, Rabbi um, Ari Leibowitz, I think it was, who mentioned this as a source that in the base of Mikdash, they had to have separate women and men's entrances, as some places do uh, today. 
uh, right? So we do have in Israel, I, I've seen it a lot more, I think probably in some places in New York also. Um, I think here in Jacob Sharazine, a lot of the men and women walk through the same front and they, they walk through the same front door. There's a lot of places in Israel where you wouldn't even find, um, you, you wouldn't find a, a shul where, um, where there's a one main entrance. Um, anyway, so that, that is with regards to the base of Mikdash. Even though the shuls in Yerushalayim, uh, in those days, I don't think you find the shul in those days that had more than one entrance. The base of Mikdash had an entrance, so to speak, for that shul for the women, according to the Shita. So that was called the Shar HaNashim. And let's see, then the eighth is Shar Hashir, right? So that's where uh, the, the musical instruments were brought in through. And and then now it's going back. It's saying, because that's where Yechanya went out. Some people called him Yochin, right? That was at the end. That's a send about, and, and, well, through into Gullus, through that, through that uh, Shar. Fine. And then finally, Shibim Mizrach. Now we're finally going to the east. So there we have the Shar Nikanor. The Shar Nikanor, we're going to discuss at great length in Yuma, the story. It was a miraculous story. Nikanor was the name of a human being who went through, he went to Alexandria, he went through a tremendous amount of Mesir Snefesh by the sea to bring back the copper for the copper doors of the Shari Nikanor. The Shari Nikanor become very prominent and is by virtue of his Messias Nefesh, there was a great storm. They were throwing off these doors that he had brought or the copper that he brought. Um, they were throwing them overboard in order to, uh, in order to survive the storm. But he said, for the first story, the, the first door they threw overboard. The second one, he said, you know what? If you're throwing this door overboard, you're throwing me with it. I went all through, all through the trouble of getting it. It's for the base of Mikdash. And it is for that Messias Nefesh that the um, storm subsided. And then, Nikan, and then Nicanor was spared, as was his door. And then when they got to port, they realized that the second door, or really the first one they threw out uh, overboard, had miraculously followed them as well. And so when those were installed, uh, they were installed with great fanfare, and they were always named for this um, person, Nicanor, um, as a sign of the Messias Nefesh for Avodah Hashem for the base of Mikdash. And so that was the Shar Nicanor. And then it points out also, in this case, Pishpishim is little, little doorways um, uh, for the Shar Nicanor. Okay, and then, right, so that's, you see over there that it's 9 and then 10 and 11. The Shnei Pishpashim account for another two gates. So there's two gates within the gate of Sharni Kanar. See the prominence of the Sharni Kanar, right? It's from, it's going in from the Ezra Snushim in, into the main area over here, uh, right in the front. You know, as people enter in from the east, it's front row and center, the Sharni Kanar. Um, putting, putting that Messias Nefesh uh, front row and center is a very beautiful gate, uh, and uh, as we will discuss soon enough in Masechus Yuma. Anyway, Echad Mi Minov Echad Mi Okay, so the, the two the two gates were one on the left and one on the right, right? One on the right, one on the left. And for whatever reason, the two on the west, as you'll see, 12 and 13 on the chart, so those do not have a name. Okay, so they don't have a name. Uh, and there, too, you see that they're off to the side, right? None of them are exactly opposite the Kodesh HaKadoshim, and that was uh, so designed so that when you walk out through those gates, you're not actually turning your back, right, to the actual Heichal Kodesh HaKadoshim, um, and so that was the reason they were so designed, Okay. So now we have the beautiful uh, gates surrounding um, this area, and that is where we have the 13 Hishtachavos. Fine. So now we get to the Gemara, and the Gemara says, ben That whole Mishnah that we discussed, as we mentioned, is one shita. The shita is that the 13 um, places where we bow uh, is, corresponds to the 13 openings. But according to the Rabbanan, there are only seven gates to the entire Azara. So amazingly, there's a machlokas as to what the design was. And the Rabbanon hold that there weren't 13 gates as we just pointed out. And so some of these gates don't exist according to the Rabbanon. Okay, so the question is then, So if that's the case, so where do we get 13? We know that's a fixed number. We know that there were 13 Ishtachavos. What's not fixed, what's a machlokas, is how many gates. Right? You would think that we knew for sure what the template 
right, what, of the of the base of Mikdash was, and we wouldn't, and maybe we would have machlokas uh, how many different places we would have down. That's not the, that's not the case. It's the opposite. We happen to know that's a fixed number. We know that there were thirteen yishalchavos. Um, the thing that's not known exactly is how, is the construction design, how many gates there were. So according to to right, so according to uh, Abba Yosa ben Yochanan, it makes sense. There's thirteen gates and thirteen yishalchavos. There must be that. That's where they that's where they you know bowed down. But according to the Rabbanan, that there were only seven gates. What did the thirteen yishalchavos correspond to? So the Maranzos, Kehi, the Tanin, and Taman, like we learned the Mishnah and Midos over there. Shloshes Pratzos Hayubo. That they, that this is a totally different thing. In the Chashmonaim the time, they made thirteen breaches right in the fence called the Sorig. They made thirteen breaches as they breached into the base of Mekdash. Shepratzu Malchay Yavan, right as we know the Yavanim Nifritzu Halai, right the the Yavanim they broke through the Chazru Gdarim Bnei Chashmonaim. And then, and then, when the Chashmonaim successfully drove out, right, the Yavanim, they were able to fence it up again. And then, based on that, they said, you know what, we're going to have 13 uh, areas where we're going to bow down, corresponding to those 13 breaches. So that in those sections, it is in those sections that, you, that, that people would uh, bow down as a, um, as a show of a Karzatov, to the fact that they were able to fight off the mighty Greeks at that time. Okay. Now getting to the water, 13 lines down in Yudzayin with Aleph. Ksiv. Well, we have a, pas- a Pasuk in Zechariah. It talks about the water that will flow out from the base of Mekdash in the end of days. I should preface this by saying that this is an either a straight-up allegory, perhaps there was no water at all, but even if there was actual water, the water itself is, is symbolic, right? In other words, certainly it's at least symbolic, even if there is water. But even if it's not water, it's an allegory. What's an allegory? Well, just to say it outside first, there was a trickle of water that came out from the base Hamikdash area and spread out to the entire Shalim. As we'll see, the, the Sukkim described as they get bigger, as they spread further and further, by the time it gets out to the streets of Yishalayim, it's like this giant ocean, okay? It's a beautiful sort of analogy. If you say Mayim is Torah, right? The analogy of Mayim to, to Torah, it actually goes out very thin and just, just from a little bit, it spreads and spreads and spreads until it just takes over the entire world uh, with the ripple effect. So of the base of Mikdash, that's how great that ripple effect that the cold mama daka that came out of Yerushalayim would affect the entire world. So let's let's look at these pesukim. So the pesukim says the following: It'll be on that right day, at the end of days, that a, a spring of water would come out of Yerushalayim. Tani. So the Bryce said, describing the stream, the following: Right again, this is um, symbolic. It starts emanates from where Kodesh Hakodeshim, right? That's the highest concentration of holiness. I might have to say the TJ story if we have time. Uh, this this beginning, okay. So uh, I'll talk about it, but let's just say I had a friend from Orthodox school that um, came to visit me in, in Israel and asked me. Um, he, he was not Jewish, but he asked me. He went to all the Christian sites and he says, "What about the wall?" I said, "We just dove in there." And then he came back and he said, "Is there a concept that there's a uh, higher level of uh, holiness or the presence of God is more concentrated by that wall?" And I said. I guess so, because he said, when I went to the wall, I felt like my whole life flashed before me, and I felt God was like with me, and I never felt like this, I didn't know what was going on. He was taken aback, he had felt some incredible Kedusha, somehow, when he went to the wall, and he was totally unsuspecting, he, didn't even, he knew that it was a holy place, but he had no idea uh, what it was supposed to represent, and he somehow sensed the holiness of that place. That was always uh, something that stuck with me, this idea that he could feel it, because he was sort of like open to it. Maybe the fact that we know that what it's supposed to be, we, we already could build barriers, but if you feel it, and you're open to it, you, could, you, can, you can sense it. So that is where it emanates from there so the, the truth is yes there's a source it's 17a2 <laughs> right from Kaddish and Kaddishim emanates that source of Kedusha and then just means the, the antenna of the types of snails in other words a small small tiny snail obviously small very tiny stream right like the like the width of the distance between the two antennae of these of these snails and then you go out through the paroches 
you get a little bit to, to the Mizbech Hazav, and it's like almost imperceptibly a little bit wider. Karnei Chagavim are the antenna of locusts, um, or, or cicadas, as they, as they were, and you know, the Yama, a cholangical coincidence, <laughs> as it gets a little bit wider. And Mizbech Hazav, Adazaras Kechut Shel Shesi, right? And then from the Mizbech Hazav, and it gets into the courtyard, it's a little bit like the thread of a warp, which is yet a little bit thicker. I mean, Adazaras had Miftan Abayis Kechut Shel Arav. The Shesi and Arav, apparently the wolf was a little bit wider than the warp. Uh, I don't know if you knew that. So as it goes out to the Miftan Abayis, the threshold, that's as we mentioned that, uh, Terminology in the Mishnah. That's the threshold over there of the house. That is going to be a little bit thicker. And we kind of look at me From that forward, it's as broad as the mouth of a flask. Um, <clears throat> I saw the article note says that when we get to Yuma, the Ben Yehoyada, which is Birnbaum's favorite, right? He talks about all the allegory, the Malbim, the different uh, al- symbolisms of this stream of water that emanates from the Kaddish Kadashim and gets imperceptibly, but in fact, a little bit wider as it goes out. Okay. So then it says, uh, as, as we continue in this description of the end of days, it says, uh, right, and then we say uh, the, the pasuk says the water was trickling from the right side. Okay, because um, that's what it says in the pasuk. It says a man left to the east and he had a measuring rod. Right, kav biado, and then he measured a thousand amas and led me across the water ankle waters. Which means that once you left the threshold of the base of Mikdash, if you go a thousand amas from there. Right, again, also, the symbolism we talked about in Masechus Erevin of these denominations of 1,000 Amos, 1,000, 2,000 Amos, okay? You go 1,000 Amos, you're at Karsula, you're until the ankles, okay? You go another 1,000 Amos out, now you're up to knee, deep waters, which means that, right, right the, the analogy here is, the literal meaning would be that if you go 2,000 Amos outside of the base of Mikdash, you'd be the, in water, right, knee deep, okay? Adber Kaya. You go another thousand amos, now you're three thousand amos away, and you're up to your right, uh, up to your waist. You go out by the time you're five, you're four thousand amos away, which is not even that far. Um, you're already at a river that you can't cross. I feel if you're running even a cruise ship wouldn't be able to pass it. It's so big. Okay, my time of it. See, adir lo Because that's what the pasuk says that Yerushalayim in future times it will, will, will look like Venice. Lahavdil elf alfei avdalas. It's going to be rivers and channels, a boat so big that that even a, a massive cruise liner couldn't cross it. why? Why can't they cross it? In other words, even even an ocean liner can uh, literally cross the ocean. What's going to be so difficult to cross? Kigau hamaim me sahu. Because the water is going to swell so much that it's going to be like an impassable stream. What's me sahu? Mahu sahus milashut. It's so strong that you can't swim across. Okay, so again, you're talking about the allegory, most likely uh, the symbolism of Torah. In other words, the, this little cold mamadaka, whatever it is that TJ was able to hear, uh, that we sometimes that he was somehow able to block out the noise due to his uh, tamimus, we were not able always to hear that noise. Just ripple effects, and as people write uh, in, internalize the Torah, it has a tremendous effect on the outside surroundings. That's the most. Um, uh, I think simple way to understand, you know, this allegory. And there's also a beautiful concept here. What's this sahu? So the, we're going to say, first of all, the water represents Torah. Sahu means, has a double meaning, as we will see. But sahu can mean swimming. We talk about sechia meaning swimming. It also means sicha. Right? It can also mean talking in Torah. And so swimming in the waters is an analogy to talking Torah and the cumulative effect it has. Okay. So now, Amar of Chuna, let's, what does the word Sachu mean? Amar of Chuna, Ba'asrin Karla Shiyata Sachuna. In our place, they called uh, Shiyata, which is swimming, Shiyya. That's what we also do. We call swimming Shiyya. Okay. Uf, uh, and so, just supporting that with the Pasuk, Ufeiras Yadav Bikirboka Shayyifares Hasochelishos. Wow, okay. When you have a Pasuk uh, talking about the destruction um, of Moab, so the, the Pasuk says that you stretch out your hands like a swimmer doing whatever, the, the, the crawl. Right, as we know, you reach out when you swim, so that's lishchos. lishchos, but what is the meaning? Right, the water that's spoken around in the world. So that's interesting. This is what I mean when I say you have the double the, the double meaning. Right, 
right? Mayan de mismalalin. Mismalalin also mila, right? Speaking. So it's water which is spoken about in the entire world. Or you could, you could say shiya or sicha. That's, that's where um, that, that analogy goes. Okay, naksiv. We have a pasuk, right? The pasuk continues in Zechariah, and it says, And that day you're going to have a spring opened up for the base David, for the chatas, and for the nida. What does this mean? Rabbi Shmuel bar Nachman b'shem Rabbi Yonasan, the base David, right? Um, that Yoshua Yerushalayim. Right, that in the span, it's talking about the span stretching from the base of it until all the right neighborhoods of Yishalayim, that the water that's going to, so this is a little bit, this is actually more than a little bit hard to understand. If you try to talk about the halachas of mikvah, so you're talking about um, what a nida would need and what a chatas would need for the sake of, of, of purification. So we know that we need mayim chaim. Okay, and we know that it flows out. The question is, how does that correspond? Why would it be kshem? So kshem lo nidolchatas. That's okay because this is mayim chaim. This is live waters, as we know. But however, mikan ve'elach may tarovas him. The the point over here is halachically, you have to figure out what's going on as the water that we're talking about uh, continues to emanate. It gets mingled with spring water and rainwater, and then it's kshem lo nidolpsulim lemechatas. Right, the mechatas uh, is the right the purification waters. So the mechatas also has its own. Um, and uh, uh, that that um, has its own right halachas, and so apparently it'll be rove rainwater uh, once it gets to the point of where it's a little bit further out. That is uh, brought out in, in uh, I saw that in, in the note because the mafarshim discuss why would it be kosher lanida. So it's still be kosher lanida because mostly it's maim chaim and rainwater, which is for mikvah purposes kosher. But for the mechatas, it would need to be more maim chaim than rainwater, and perhaps that's why it would be puzzle mechatas. Okay, or a different interpretation. He agrees that for uh, uh, all that flowing water until it gets to the neighborhoods of Yerushalayim is going to be kosher water. Those are called water of slopes. The slope is too steep um, and it's moving too fast and once that water moves too fast, that is uh, against, that, that already is possible. Then it's possible. Okay. Now, more discussion of the spring in Yechezkel in the end of days as follows. He said to me, the waters go out to, right, the, the, the eastern Galil. That's referring to it, the water's gonna go all the way out till the Sea of Samchu. What is the Sea of Samchu? It's a story where this used to be a famous one. It's, it's on the, on the northernmost part. It's, it's, uh, it's, uh, like, it's like a 20 minute drive north of the Kinneret. And it used to be a famous river and that, uh, a famous, uh, rather, a sea. Today it's mostly drained out. Um, but that was, Samchu has other references in, in, uh, Shas. But anyways, that was, that was how far the water went. And then Vayardu al Ha'arava. And it descended all the way to the plain. So the plain, if you, if you ever went to the, that's, the Yamshat Tveri is the Kinneret. We call the Kinneret today. Um, if, when you drive, right, if you ever drove to the Kinneret, this beautiful drive to the Kinneret, uh, from, depending which, uh, part you're going from, you drive down the mountain and you see it below. Right, so that is what it means, going down into the plain. Yardu la'arava, beautiful. Uvar yamaz yamamelech. Right, and the passage continues and refers to the Yama when it goes to go all the way to down to the sea. That's Yama Melech, which we famously already know. El Hayama Hamutzayim Zayam Gadol. So that's referring to the Great Sea. So we're talking about the bodies of water of Eretz Israel, and the waters will expand all the way out there. Okay, what what's the source of of Yama Hamutzayim? Why is it called that? Because it's called Mutzayim, which means expanding. Because of two times that it expanded, says the Gemara. That really, during these sinful generations at the very beginning of time, right, the water overflowed. Um, this is not this is not Noah per se, where everything was covered with water. This is where water overflowed and became permanently overflowed, as we'll see. The Gemara elaborates, says Lazar, Lazar, right? When we call somebody Lazar, it's not just a nickname, right? Lazar, uh, it was always called Lazar in the Yerushalmi. Lazar b'shem Rabbi Chanina, Barishon Yatza Ad Kalbaria. 
the first time, right, during the Dor Enosh, it flowed until Calabria, which is the heel of Italy, not to be confused with the toe of Italy, which is where Calabria is today, okay? And the second time, it flowed until it reached the Barbary Coast, which separates Africa from, that basically uh, is in Africa, which is to say, right, Dora Flugga, think of what this means. They, they made Migdal Bavel, right? They had all the people were united. Kodesh saw when people were united, sometimes they weren't united towards a lofty cause. They were united and they thought, we're going to take on a Kodesh Baruch going to. So he separated them in Dora Flaga. Think about the separation that happened. A water, as we discussed, between Africa and Europe. Literally like Africa and Europe. And think of all the, uh, so to speak, racial issues that we talk about. All the inhabitants of Africa and how different they are from the inhabitants of Europe. And all the tension that, 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 uh, that would happen from that separation over time in any event. That was uh, done at that at that second um, splitting. Okay. Now, Rabbi Yaakov, Rishem, Rabbi Hanina, Rabbi This is the su- subject of dispute here. That the first time it actually was separating Africa from Europe. And the second time it flowed until it reached Akko and Yafo. Where is its source? It says in Eov. It should go until here and shouldn't and no, no more. Because Fo is like Po, which Po is like Yafo. And that is where it should go and not more. Ufo yashis be galecha. Right? Because that's where the Pasuk ends by saying, that's where you'll flaunt your majesty. Gaon galecha. At yafo yashis galecha. So the word fo and yafo are a play on words, and that's where you get the source for yafo. Fine. Still talking about the stream emanating for Basimikdash. I understand, right, why it would reach the Great Sea, why it would reach the Mediterranean, why it would reach Yamamelech. That makes sense. Why Bishvilamatkan? Because those are what? Saltwater bodies. And so it's cool that you have this fresh water going into salt water, making it sweeter. In other words, right? The Kinneret and, and the Samchu, those lakes are uh, freshwater lakes. So what would be the point of extending to there? The Gemara says, the Rabbos Gassam. So they can increase their fish. Right? So, so to proliferate a multitude of fish. And now we're going to show you that such a proliferation of fish can, ha- can actually occur. You put in, right, one, you put in like a net, you come out with 300 different species of fish on a single plate. He got the fish platter. And it was 300 different uh, types of fish. Sounds delicious. I, I love seafood. There are a lot of seafood restaurants by the Kinneret, etc. I like athlete also by the Mediterranean. Anyways, uh, this water, again, the fish is also in another analogy. So all of this is sort of like uh, describing the proliferation of Torah and Mazel and good things in the end of days. Uh, maybe see the Mayim Sheikh and the proliferation of Torah emanating from the base of Mikdash soon. Okay, just continuing. The waters will become sweet, the swamps, the pools, everything will be sweet, and they'll be set aside. Set aside for salt. So what's going on here? They'll be set aside for salt or they become sweet. Well, are we talking about fresh water or salt water? So the Gemara answers, no. That was the name of the place. The name of the place was Lo Yerafu. And that's why it's called. It doesn't mean that it, all the waters um, uh, would, be, would be salt. In other words, the, the, the salt could be produced where it was salty, but the other waters, the fresh waters, will not become salty. That's just the name of the place. Okay. And then it says, Along the streams, that will lead to all kinds of, again, fruit, tree production, a leaf won't wither, fruit won't give out, and by its months, by months, it's going to yield new crop. What is this by months? The Gemara is going to analyze that aspect. Typically, it takes six months. That's the grain cycle. And the tree cycle is annual. When we get to it's going to be a quicker cycle, just one month for the grain, and two, it's still going to be the same ratio, one to two, but it's going to be one month for the grain, two months for the trees, bada bing, bada boom. Because it says in the Pasuk that it's going to be by its months, it's going to yield new crop. Chadashav is plural, two months. 
Okay. Right? Lamza agrees. Now it's six months and nobody and, and the trees are annual. Nobody disagrees with that natural physical reality. What's going to happen in the end of the days where things are going to turn around faster? The actual nature is going to change. Right? Twice as fast as the previous shita that's going to be just a half a month for the trua and a full month for the ilan. But however, his source is, rather, that in the days of Yoel, you know, there's a book of Joel. So in, in Sefer Yoel, this is described, that there's going to be 15 day cycle for the Omer, And from that, they brought the Omer. My timer. And what's the basis? The Pasuk. The Pasuk says, Uvnei Tzion Gilu V'Simchu. Right? End of days. The children of Zion will be happy. He gave you a teacher of Tzedakah. And there it means um, rain for you. There, more, it's a play on word. Moreh is a teacher, but it's also called the early rain. Uh, in the first month. Okay. In the first month. Sounds like uh, at that point, right, that's where you got the, this miracle that rain would fall, right? You had no rain until the first of Nisan is uh, uh, over there. And then you had the entire produce. Usually it falls... Usually rain falls throughout the rainy season, right? It falls between Sukkot and Pesach and then stops in Israel. Here, you had no rain the entire season. It only started in Rosh Chodesh Nisan, but that was enough. Um, that was enough to produce just in a few days all the Tzvah. That was the, that was the uh, miracle then. However, this Shita Rabbi Yossi means that it's only one month, but the Chodesh is plural. So how, how do you answer that? The Gemara says, no. It just means within each month. That's why it's plural month. Every single month, you'd have this crop. The cycle would just be monthly cycle. Amazing. Okay, Valei Lushrifa, and so it's amazing how fertile everything will be in those days. Uh, fine. So now, furthermore, in the Pasuk, uh, the end of the days of Yechezkel, Valei Lushrifa, you'll have leaves for healing. You could serve as a food for two people. Ushraf Mizona, and the root means food. Okay, that's what Alei Lushrifa means. Rabbi Shmuel, they said something else. They said, They had a. An opinion that it had either the upper pair, which would be like an appetite, or the lower pair, which would have to do with digestion. Either way, it would be very, very healthy, okay? One said, no, it could open the mouth's womb of the akaros. Those who are barren would become fertile. And the other one says, those who are mute will start talking. Amazing miracles that will happen in those days, okay? Fine, five lines up. We're now going to continue about um, the more with regards to the gates, right? Right. You also notice in your shami, we don't really have a lot of two dots. So this would be like a two dots moment where opposite right the southern gates we have in the north as we said so we say you'll find that when Mechonetzer came up to Israel this is the beginning of the end he was on the outskirts of Antioch right to the north that's where his base was which today is like southern Turkey the Sanhedrin came out to meet him he said are you here to destroy the base of Mikdash you can imagine this um, dialogue you know what bring I brought the king I put Yochan here bring him to me and then I'll go so they went to Yochan they said Nebuchadnezzar asked for you came into Shammai and Kach when he heard this he knew that that was the end what did he do? He took the keys to the base of Mikdash, went to the roof of the Heichal, and Amr and he says before Hashem, We used to be faithful to you, but you must So you trusted us, and you gave us the keys to the car, as it were, the keys to the base of Mikdash. But now we're no longer trustworthy. I give you back the keys. He gave the keys to Kashmarchu because he knew that it was over. Wow, the Gemara says, train there's a machlokus as to how he passed the keys back to Hashem. One says he threw up the keys and they never went back down. That's how we imagine it. Or that Hashem actually brought his hands down and took the keys from his hand. As we turn to Yudanim Abayz, when all of the noblemen of Yudah saw this, all of Rosh Kagosayim and Nafu Tragedy, you can imagine just how incredibly uh, depressed 
everyone was. Remember, all the Jews in the world live in Eretz Israel. The entire uh, vision was to leave Mitzrayim as we just uh, celebrated and to build this base of Mikdash as they did and to live happily ever after. This was the end of the innocence. And so they couldn't handle it and they actually took their lives by jumping off the roofs. Although the that's actually in the Pesukim. There's a prophecy about the gay Chizayon, right? That valley, why it's called the Valley of Vision is another discussion. But basically we say, what happened to you? You all went up to the rooftops Right, it was full commotion. Basically, uh, the the uh, end of the pasuk says that you're slain. Right, you're dead. We're not victims of the sword, but rather they took their lives by jumping off the roofs, just to show the the deep, deep uh, depression that was the result of um of, of the realization of the coming of the destruction of that base of Mikdash. So now we're at Alakha Gimel, and we have seven minutes, and you'll see Doctor uh, Dinah Bays is actually a little bit small. So let's keep going. The thirteen tables. Let's talk the tables. Uh, we'll continue with the tables tomorrow, but we'll get started here. There were 13 tables in the base of Mikdash, right? We already said that in the, in the first Mishnah, that there were 13 Shlachavas, now we're talking about 13 tables. In the area where they used to do all the butchering and the slaughtering, they were made out of shayish, so they wouldn't get too warm and spoil out the meat, right? That's where you wash the innards of these kabanos. Two were on the west ramp, of, on the west of the ramp. One was marble, one was silver. And And as we discussed, the avarim is, is where you, you would put place those on the marble uh, table until the Kohan were ready to bring them up to the base, to right up the ramp to as a carbon. And then you put the clay sharvis on the silver table. And two more tables inside, right, on the ulam. Near the doorway, there too, there was one of marble, and then the second one was of gold. You would put the lechem upon him when you enter on the marble one, and when it was taken out, you put that already on the golden one, because gold is more precious than marble, and so you show that the bread is coming from marble and higher up to gold. And finally, the one gold inside the, uh, right inside, where you put the lechem upon him and where it would just stay continually. So the Gemara says, Tani al shal kesef. We said that we put the lechem upon him on the marble table, but we have also a brisa that says that you put him on the silver table. So what's going on? So the, so the Gemara says, Rabbi Yosef B'Shem Rishmuel, Rabbi Yosef explains, used to quote this name of Yochanan, Leis Khan Shel Kesef. No, no. The Mishnah here is, doesn't mean Shel Kesef, because it can't be, because the Kesef, right, heats up, and that would cause not only the meat to spoil, but even the bread would, would become spoiled there. So the Gemara asks, Lokein Tani. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says, That was one of the, the miracles, was that it was fresh, delicious, lechem upon him was always fresh and delicious, never got stale. So why do we have to worry about it being made out of kesef? It says the, that you put the bread there, this is Shmuel Aleph, okay, it's, you put it hot and it stays hot and fresh. So No, you can't just quote a kasha from a maisa, you can't quote the nisim and say that that's still a good policy. In other words, it's a, it's a version of Ein Somchelan and Alamais, right? Just because we had Nisim in the base of Mikdash, as we enumerated Perkeavos and other places, right? We did have a Nisim, but we didn't rely on those Nisim, right? Um, we still had to make uh, a design that would make sense with nature, and, and then the Nisim would still come, anyways. They asked the following question in front of Rabbi Law. Let's say for whatever reason there was no fresh bread. Could you continue to leave the bread from the week before there? I mean, it's miraculously left fresh, so can you use, reuse that? So Amalan, he answered, the Pasuk so the lechem panim should always stay there. Lechem panim afilu pasul. That means that even if it, it was pasul, you should still always leave it. In other words, you never leave the lechem panim. Never leaves it. So, so it, no, it's not like if you don't have bread, you take it off and you're short bread that day, right? It's like leaving the bima. You always leave the bima occupied, right, uh, between the leaves. Okay. Now, so, now the brisa says, "Asar shulchanos asar shlomo." All the thirteen tables, ten of them were made by Shlomo Hamelach. Chesiv v'yashulchanos asaro. It says that he made ten. And he put right five to the right and five to the left. Now wait a minute. 
What does it mean to the right and to the left? If you're going to say to the right, that means to the south and to the north, right, depending on how you're orienting yourself. If that means south and north, that can't be. Uh, we know that the Shulchan was always in the north. Right, that's a pasuk that says it has to be, the Shulchan is always associated with the north. So so what's left and right? What's the orientation here? So it says, no, it means don't forget, there's 13 tables. So 10 of them were made by Shlomo Melech, and there was a Shulchan of the original Mishkan of, Shlomo, of Moshe Rabbeinu was actually sitting right in the middle over there and in the base of Mikdash, and of the 10, right, um, they were all in the north, but five of them were to the left and five of them were to the right of the Shulchan of Moshe Rabbeinu. And it says, Nevertheless, the Kohen himself would arrange the Lechem upon him only on the table of Moshe Rabbeinu. Because that's what the Pasuk says. The table that the Lechem upon him is on. That implies that there's, that, that suggests that there's only one Shulchan. Well, if there's only going to be one that you're going to put it on, you better believe it'll be the one that actually survived all the way through uh, the midbar from Moshe Rabbeinu. To that, Rabbi Yosef Rabbi no, he put the Lechem upon him on all of them because there's a Pasuk that says Shulchan is in the plural. That it, on the upon them. The lechem ha'panim. So now tomorrow we continue with Tani, uh, which is the two dots, four lines up from the bottom of Zion Bays, discussing more about this uh, about these shulchanos.